Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm very happy to have this opportunity to address all of you. And um, although I will be making a few general remarks and observations um, about Buddhism and the Buddhist tradition and how it relates um, to the area of education, um, which is a subject um, that I'm very interested in and devoted to myself. Um, understanding that in your own lives, um, your efforts to promote GNH in the um, national curriculum um, is, is one which is taking a more secular approach, then I, I would try to express myself in those more general um, secular terms whenever I can. Um, but to begin with, um, I, I would like to uh, repeat a point I've been making in a number of places <coughs> since I arrived. Um, and, it, and it is um, an, an observation um, of the religious traditions in the world. The religions that grew up in the Middle East, particularly the great monotheistic religions of Judaism, uh, Christianity, Islam, um, are, um, we, are, we often refer to them as the great faiths. And that in itself points to the essence or the essential feature, the, uh, the prime virtue promoted by those religions is faith. And we, re we can refer to those religions as belief systems. And as Western culture is the dominant culture in the world today, the understanding of religion is very much influenced by the uh, Western viewpoint, uh, which is, uh, as I say, developed in the midst of these faith-based religions or um, belief systems, to the extent uh, to which the word religion is used as a general term. And we are led to understand that all religions um, are basically the same thing. They're all doing the same job. They might use some different terms, but they're all essentially um, trying to teach the same values and lead to the same goals. Now, I, I would um, say very uh, bluntly here that I don't agree with that. I don't think it's an accurate, it's an ideal, it would be very nice, I, I would think, if there was that kind of harmony, but I, I don't think it's the case. Um, the people who most enthusiastically um, um, talk about the unity of religions are, are usually the ones that know, know the least about them. The, I, I would say in particular that Buddhism is a very different kind of religion. I always call it a different species of religion. And that we run a great danger of misunderstanding our own Buddhist heritage and, and of 
not deriving the benefit that we should derive from our Buddhist heritage when we see it as a belief system, as a faith. Um, I would say that the use of the word the Buddhist faith is already um, an inaccurate and incorrect um, appellation. So my proposal is that, that Buddhism is essentially an education system. If you look at the Buddhist texts and compare it with the, the Bible, the Quran, the texts of other religions, there is a huge difference in the content, the style, um, in almost in every aspect of, of those books. Now, um, speaking of, of Buddhism um, in particular, um, we can say that it's founded upon um, the human being. It's not concerned with creating a particular or correct relationship between the human, uh, the human being and the divine. Um, it is based upon a belief in the capacity of the human being for enlightenment and the capacity of the human being uh, for um, education and for transformation. If we compare human beings with most animals, we see a significant difference. Most animals um, are self-sufficient within a very short time, some within hours, some within days, some within months. Uh, they learn everything they need to learn from their parents and their environment to enable them to survive for the rest of their life. Human beings take years and years um, before um, they are self-sufficient and they don't just learn what they need to survive in a very early period um, and then just make use of that knowledge. But we have the ability, the capacity for lifetime learning. And what Buddhism says is that our humanity uh, lies in that capacity, in our ability, our capacity for lifetime learning. It's what makes us truly human. And the kind of um, learning which is considered most essential to um, our happiness and, and welfare is the understanding of how to abandon all of the negative qualities within us, how to develop and to bring to maturation all the positive qualities and how to purify our minds. The uh, the summation of this Buddhist um, scheme of education, of every aspect of our, of our lives, of body, speech and mind, is what we call enlightenment. And the enlightened being was called by the Buddha the Aseka Pukala. And we can translate that into English very simply as the graduate someone who has graduated from life. Uh, so the enlightened person is the only true graduate. And everyone else um, is learning. So Buddhism teaches us to perceive ourselves, to look at ourselves 
as learners. We're learning. And how that applies, in, um, particularly in an educational context, is that uh, we don't look at a school or a college as being composed of teachers and learners or students, but as different kinds of students. So you have um, one group of students is called the pupil, are called the pupils. The second group of students are called the teachers. And the third group of students are called the parents. And this education process will, will really thrive when we're able to instill that idea that just as um, the pupil is encouraged never to be complacent, but constantly seeking to develop more and more, then similarly the teacher is never, uh, should never be complacent about his knowledge and teaching skills. Um, and particularly um, when, when we also introduce the idea of teachers as role models, then it uh, becomes even more um, essential that the teacher is constantly um, perceiving himself or herself as a student of life. And thirdly, um, we need to be able to bring the parents in also, that they are students. They are students of life, but they are also students themselves, students of how to be um, good uh, sons and daughters themselves, if they still have living parents, how, how to be good parents, how to be good spouses, how to be good human beings. So, um, this is why you know, I think that uh, of the great religious traditions, um, Buddhism um, is, offers unparalleled um, resources for an education system. And one which is grounded upon Buddhist psychological principles um, will um, be very effective because the Buddha was the person who plumbed the, the profound depths of human uh, nature. There is no uh, religious tradition, no philosophical tradition, which has even a tiny percentage of the insights into the nature of human consciousness that the Buddhist tradition um, possesses. On one occasion, uh, the, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, in a meeting um, with Western academics, referred, not, not slightingly and not uh, you know, patronizingly, but um, listening to a, a presentation on Western psychology, he said, this is baby psychology. You know, it's, like, it's like this is so basic compared with uh, what is taught in the, in the Buddhist traditions. This is a wonderful resource that we have. Now, um, speaking in particular on the um, development of, of GNH and GNH values in the school system in Bhutan, for instance. Um, one thing uh, I think to um, be wary of is that most traditions teach uh, virtues that we should possess. And indeed, Many traditions will tell us, you should be 
la you should be like this you should be like that you should not be like this you should not be like that a good person is kind and unselfish and sharing and a bad person is greedy and so on and so forth so we all heard this so many times haven't we who what we should be like and what we should not be like and maybe that's the way that we teach our children and our students you should be like this and you should be like that but the simple um, point the problem that remains is that we're so very rarely given any tools any practical everyday means to promote positive qualities and to remove the obstacles to their development and if that's the case then we're always in the realm of ideals you know and we can we can comfort ourselves you say well yes we teach kindness we teach compassion we teach unselfishness we teach honesty and really believe that we are teaching them when in fact all we're doing is telling people you should be kind you should be compassionate you should be this and you should be that so psychologically um it's uh naive and ineffective and what can often happen is that people who are constantly taught in that way start to feel i'm hopeless i'm bad i should be this and i'm not you know um and feel very discouraged so what i feel that the buddhist tradition has to offer um and it it can be also be offered in a in a very um non-buddhist idiom if we if we wish for that if we feel that's necessary um are uh, specific uh technologies specific methods and techniques of embodying of bringing into real life the kinds of ideals that we uphold um so i'm i'm going to give you uh, you know a few um pointers and observations and um principles firstly that although um in english we um we often use the word meditation the uh, the buddha himself um surprisingly perhaps um never used that word the word that the buddha used most commonly is pavana uh, which means um cultivation or development and the buddha didn't confine it to um spiritual development um uh, as such but pointed out that any human development positive development or cultivation must be a holistic organic development one which encompasses every aspect of our lives if we don't grasp this particular point all that meditation will provide us and in fact it's not a small thing at all um and that it is stress reduction but um meditation as a transformative tool in our lives um will only uh, really come about 
when it is integrated with a whole attitude to life, a whole system of development. The Buddha made very clear that um, morality is the indispensable foundation for spiritual growth. And here, um, um, also um, perhaps carrying on from the point I made about the uniqueness of the Buddhist tradition, um, is that whereas if we look in a rather superficial way at the precepts that lay Buddhists uphold and compare it with the commandments in the Christian tradition or the rules of, of other traditions, we can see more or less the same thing. But there are some very crucial differences here. Um, one is that there is no reward and punishment system in Buddhism. There's no deity going to give you a reward if you lead a moral life, and there's no one going to punish you um, if you lead an immoral life. There's um, the, uh, the leading of a moral life in the Buddhist tradition um, is one which must come about voluntarily. If there's any sense of external compulsion, or if one is acting, conducting oneself in a particular way, um, purely for a desire for material advancement, or prestige, or position, or praise, then um, it would be quite a good thing sometimes, but it will not be the kind of morality which is a training, which is a form of education. So the Buddhist um, approach is that precepts are forms of education. So if we take the basic um, precepts, we can say, I undertake to educate my conduct by refraining from killing and harming living beings. I undertake to educate my conduct through refraining from taking anything which is not freely given to me. I make an, I take a, make an undertaking to, um, to educate, to train my conduct through refraining from adultery and sexual misconduct, and so on. Now, the idea behind this is one, again, <laughs> confidence in our capacity to act wisely and to train ourselves. We start off by asking ourselves what kind of family, what kind of community, what kind of society would we like to live in? What kind of society would we like our children to grow up in? What would, the, uh, what would be the, like, the bottom line that we would say we can, uh, we can feel um, relieved and confident in the safety of our children, the well-being of our children? I think one of the, um, the, the kinds of answers, and I've asked many groups of people in many different places this kind of question is, we need to feel that um, we're physically safe. 
that we're not going to be physically oppressed, hurt, abused. We need to have some sense of security for our property. We need to have some sense of security um, and freedom from worry that someone uh, will try to take our partner, our loved one, away from us. Or that our partner is, um, is having affairs behind our back. Uh, we need to feel um, that sense of trust and relaxation that, um, that when people speak to us, that they're telling the truth and they're not lying and cheating us. We need, we, we'd like to live in communities where we feel people are responsible for their actions, not under the influence of alcohol and drugs. So, if we have certain basic principles for a healthy society, a society in which we can trust each other, in which we feel secure, in which we feel some affection and care for each other, the next step from that is, what are the practical steps that we can take to promote the kind of families and communities that we would like to live in? And here, the, the Buddha suggests that we draw upon a universal human quality or gift. And that is the ability to refrain. Now, you can see with, most anim with animals that that's not possible. If you have a cat that likes to chase rats and eat them, you know, even if that cat um, has a lot of affection for you and listens to you, and even if you could speak cat language, I don't think you could get that cat to stop chasing rats because its instincts are so powerful. Now, human beings, we also have those kinds of instincts for survival, for sex, for procreation, all these kinds of instincts, and they're not evil. But we do have the ability to stand back from our animal instincts and make judgments. Well, I won't do this. Would you want to do it? Oh, yes. Well, why not do it? Oh, well, it would be so hurtful to that person. Or it wouldn't be right. I just wouldn't feel right to do that. So this is a basic human um, uh, quality we have. It's a wonderful quality where in certain circumstances we can say, I won't follow my instincts. I won't do this. I won't say that because um, it would be, it would create problems and consequences, suffering for myself and others. It's not worth it, basically. So, in the moral realm, if we voluntarily take upon ourselves certain boundaries and certain restrictions and we can maintain our conduct within those restrictions, we have the basis for self-respect. We have the basis for um, healthy, supportive communities um, externally and internally we have the self-respect and self-esteem necessary for further spiritual practice. In this question of self-esteem, the other main pillar, 
supporting that sense of self-respect and self-esteem is generosity. When we act generously, when we give, when we share with others, we see immediately that we, just little old me, we may not have a very high opinion of ourselves, but we can see through certain actions and certain speech, we can reduce, even by a little bit, someone else's suffering. We can increase, even by a little bit, someone else's happiness. And we say, I'm, just not, I'm not just nothing in this world. I'm not a meaningless uh, bit of driftwood. I make a positive yeah, impact on the world I live in, even if it's in very modest ways. So generosity and a voluntary acceptance of boundaries for conduct, these are the foundations for an effective meditation practice. They can, if you're not acting in that way, um, you won't be a friend to yourself. You won't have self-respect and the kind of perseverance um, and effort needed to be successful in meditation practice uh, will not be accessible to you. As you start to put effort into meditation practice, you begin to think, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve peace. I don't deserve this. Why? Because I'm such a bad person. I'm always doing things that make other people unhappy. and I'm always this. No, I'm such a bad person. I can't do this. I don't deserve to be able to do it. So these are the kind of the psychological impediments to spiritual practice which are very strong in people who are not careful about the quality of their actions and speech. Now given um, that we are putting effort in our daily life to be kind and generous and to, uh, and to be mindful and aware of our actions and speech, next thing is a, like a daily meditation practice. Now, for meditation to be a transformative um, element of our lives, you know, it, it cannot just be one or two minutes um, a day. Um, there, for the real work of meditation to take place, um, you need much. You need a much greater um, investment of time and energy. Just um, to digress um, a little bit, a book that I would uh, recommend people read, not a Buddhist book, but a book of general interest, a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers, um, which is a book dealing with the uh, conditions underlying success. Uh, and he relates in one chapter of this book uh, that he... Um, uh, let me see that in a study at one of the leading music schools in America so the schools are all, these children or these students already quite proficient um, in their um, musical uh, talents were divided into three groups the really gifted the moderately gifted and the lesser gifted and then they um, did some research on how many hours a day these children practiced. 
Now, the assumption would be that the gifted children, um, the ones that just from birth have found everything very easy, um, would need to practice and would practice much less than the lesser gifted children um, who have to make up for their lack of inherent um, ability through hard work. What they found was that it was exactly the opposite. The more gifted the student, the more hours a day they practiced. And the, um, a, a theory was developed from these studies that for true proficiency, for true excellence in any skill, you need to make an investment of about 10,000 hours. So, that's a, so um, if you're meditating one or two minutes a day, um, try and work out how many years or lifetimes before you get your 10,000 hours. Um, so now I'd like to just to give you a few um, pointers about meditation practice um, because there doesn't seem to be much clarity about this. Now, um, initially, meditation is an effort to increase attention span. These days, attention spans are becoming shorter and shorter. And it's a major problem in education systems everywhere. And the more, as Bhutan develops, um, physically and materially, you will find that um, the attention span of children declines unless there are um, really diligent efforts to prevent that happening. The, um, the Buddha referred to the mind already, this is 2,500 years ago before modern distractions, as the monkey mind. So it's the natural um, tendency of the mind to wander all over the place. Now, because um, we don't see our minds in the same way that we can see and smell our bodies, um, very few people have a concept of mental hygiene in the way that they have a physical hygiene. So if you don't bathe very often, uh, you become where you feel uncomfortable and your body will start to smell. That's the nature of the physical body, which means that most people are quite diligent about bathing. But nobody can see your mind. And you, unless you make a, a conscious effort to look at your mind, you won't see it either. Um, and so we're very alienated from um, our minds. We're very unaware of the springs of our actions. We, uh, we lie to ourselves, we're deluded, we consider ourselves far more rational than we actually are. And there are many, many um, uh, studies these days to, to show this in a very um, practical and knowledgeable way. I'll give you this is to kind of an entertaining, I think, example of how much less rational that we may think. This is not a matter of whether or not you studied science. This is just normal and natural. Um, a group of people were given two options. One option was 
a completely free weekend holiday in Paris, staying in a five-star hotel, everything laid on completely free. The second option um, was a completely free, all expenses paid, five-star hotel, etc., etc., holiday in Rome. So you had to choose one or the, one or the other. So there was, a, um, in the initial um, study, it was about 50-50. Half the people thought they'd like to go to Paris and see the Eiffel Tower, and half wanted to go to Rome and see all the things that Rome has to offer. Now, the next stage of this study, uh, a third option was introduced. And the third option was you could have a weekend in Rome, all expenses paid, five-star hotel, etc., etc., but you had to pay for the coffee. So uh, now you had three choices rather than two. The, the initial group were asked to, um, uh, to deal with these three options. Now, if we were completely rational beings, option number three would have no impact at all because there's no value added to option two. Um, instead of getting everything for free in Rome, now you have to pay for coffee. So, if we were rational beings, the second time this test was done, you'd get exactly the same result. 50% want to go to Paris, 50% go to Rome. But, what happens is, in the second case, something like 80% of the people now want option two, Rome free and only about 20% or 20-something percent still go for Paris. Suddenly, option two has become more attractive than option one, even though nothing has changed at all. And the reason being that option two, a completely free roam, now seems more attractive because it has um, roam with... Um, uh, a penalty involved. It's not a, a not quite so attractive role. And so I, I just offer this as just one of hundreds of examples of ways in which we're unaware of how irrational our minds are. Um, I, I have many, many examples of this um, to, to tell people who are rather proud of their rational powers, but where time doesn't permit that right now. Um, so what I'm um, proposing is that, generally speaking, um, we have very little understanding of what's going on in our minds. It's like someone who drives a car and has never opened the car. You know, they've always just depended on the garage. And then when, as long as the car's driving along, they're fine. But then when the car breaks down, they don't know what to do because they never learned about an engine and they don't know how a car works. And most of us are in that kind of uh, state. So, um, meditation is not just a, a way of just kind of blissing out and just forgetting all our troubles. What it's doing is providing us um, a tool in which we can uh, understand ourselves more clearly and to develop skillful means of identifying and dealing with negative mental qualities and finds ways of promoting and developing 
positive mental qualities. So it's providing us a technology, it's providing us a means of putting this GNA, these GNH values into action within ourselves and only when we're able to do that, of course, are we able to model them. Now, the, the basic principle of the first stage of meditation is that the mind, in order to let go of its distractions and its usual preoccupations, needs an anchor. So you can't go from attaching and running after all these different moods and emotions to a point of uh, objectless peace. The intermediate stages, you have to hold on to one thing and then let go of everything else except that one thing. So this is an important principle. So we, we are developing intention span, developing mindfulness of an object. Now, the, the object that I um, would recommend, that you might like to try yourself, is the breathing process. Um, this is uh, a valuable tool in many ways because everybody breathes. You know, it's not a Buddhist uh, function of the human body. Um, we're all breathing all the time. And it's a matter of merely uh, focusing on something which we usually take for granted, except for when we're walking up a steep hill or when we have difficulties in breathing. So the sensation of the breath at a particular point in the body. Usually we'll use an area around the tip of the nose, um, but it's not a fixed thing. And it's wherever you, you can uh, recognize, acknowledge, you feel the breath most clearly. So it might be nearer your lip, at the tip of your nose, even inside your nostril. It could even be somewhere else. It could be in your throat or in your chest. It's not important, but that's your workplace. That's where you're going to sustain your attention. And then uh, you make the effort to sustain the attention for the whole duration of an in-breath and the whole duration of an out-breath. And what you'll find is that um, we usually were very good at the beginning of something, but then our attention gradually wanders off and we, and we lose it. So you'll find immediately that you can't do it. Um, and this is a very humbling and sobering fact, I would hope for all of us, that you have so little inner control, inner administration of your own mind that you cannot even sustain attention on your breathing for more than a second or more at a time without your mind wandering off. Um, and that's, um, you know, uh, a really terrible thing. How can we be spiritually mature people? How can we be developing um, values consistently and well and wisely if we have that uh, little um, inner integrity and control. So, so what do we do about it? Well, nothing too um, uh, esoteric or difficult. It's just very patiently bringing your attention back to the breath. So it wanders away into the past, 
into the future, thinking about this and that, and, and then you, once you realize, you stop and you return to the breath. So the breath is your anchor. Um, now, you start to um, uh, observe all kinds of things about your mind through this simple practice. So, uh, I would compare it to looking at your mind or being self-aware in daily life is like trying to follow a rapidly moving object against a background of many different colors. It's very difficult to do that. But if you have a single color um, as a screen, and if you have a grid on it, then it's very much easier to follow a moving object. So the breath, the mindfulness of the breath, uh, fulfills the function of a, uh, a single colored screen in which you are able to recognize all the ways in which you are not peaceful. And this is an extremely um, important part of self-knowledge and self-awareness. So you begin to see for yourself the extent to which uh, petty kind of desires and um, attachments, um, the craving for excitement and stimulation, um, how much that conditions your mind, the petty irritations and aversions, the laziness, the, um, the, the, the um, sloth, the torpor of the mind, the agitations in the mind, the doubts, all these um, things are rising and passing away again and again in your mind and whenever they arise in your mind unobserved then they will have an effect um, but being aware of these um, negative qualities not as my negative qualities but simply aspects of nature which are now being revealed uh, to the eye of awareness um, then we learn how to let them go. And so uh, many meditators um, can become discouraged. They say, I can't meditate. I'm not very good at it. You say, well, why? Well, before, you know, just a few seconds and my mind's gone off somewhere and I bring it back. And it's, but that's completely normal. And it's not that you're wasting your time when that occurs. You're developing a mental muscle. If your mind wanders, you realize that's a moment of awakening. It's a moment of enlightenment. And then you're willing to let go of the interest and the enjoyment of that thought, that fantasy or whatever it might be, and return to the present moment. You're developing the quality of renunciation. So you're learning, uh, you're sharpening your ability to observe what's going on in your mind. You're learning how to let go of negative emotions. You're developing the ability to re-establish your awareness in the present moment. Every time that your mind goes somewhere and you realize and you come back to your breath. And what you will notice in your daily life, if you do this on a regular basis, is that you become distracted um, less often. You become aware of distraction more quickly. 
and you are able to re-establish your attention in the present moment more easily. Now, in this effort to um, develop, attempt to lengthen the attention span, to create this state of inner, um, relaxed wakefulness, it is important to realize that you cannot use willpower and just drive negative thoughts out of your mind. Um, that kind of aggressive approach won't work. The time of the Buddha, there was um, a young man of good family who ordained as a monk, and he was very devoted to practice, had so much faith. Uh, his name was Sona. Um, and he had this idea of all you need is kind of devotion and faith and commitment and just sort of blast your way through um, all the obstacles. And he started doing walking meditation, walking up and down, up and down, for hour after hour after hour. And because he was very wealthy and he wasn't used to walking that way, he wasn't used to walking bare feet, he cut his feet to ribbons. And he said, keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And the Buddha realized what was going on, and the Buddha visited him, and the Buddha said to him, Sona, um, before you became a monk, did you like to play the lute, like a guitar, a musical instrument? And he said, yes, Lord, I did. And he said, when you played the lute, what would happen if the strings were too loose? And he said, well, you get a very bad sound. He said, what happened if you tightened the, the string too, too tight? And he said, the strings would snap. So how do you get a good sound from your musical instrument? Well, you have to tighten the, the strings just the right amount. Not too tight, not too loose. And the Buddha said, that's exactly how you meditate. Not too tight, not too loose. Another um, image to uh, convey this idea for how you meditate is if you imagine a small bird in your hand. Now, if you were to hold that bird too tightly, you would hurt the bird or you might even kill it. But if you were to open your hand too much, the bird might fly away. So how would you hold that small bird just enough that it doesn't fly away, but not so tightly that you hurt the bird. That's how you hold your mind in meditation. But you can't just get like one state, yeah, this is the just right state, and sustain that. Because in the course of meditation, your mind will be changing, and you have to be adjusting that tension, maybe making it a little bit tighter, or a little bit looser, and this is the art of meditation, um, being able to develop skillful means um, to adjust the quality of your attention um, as situations change. As the mind becomes calmer, the breath will change, you become very, very subtle, almost disappear. For some people, the breath can disappear altogether. So there are many different experiences um, in meditation. Now, um, time doesn't permit me to, to, to uh, I've already gone over the time I, I meant to do. Just a few more points about meditation. It's important to recognize that these kinds of 
hindrances we have in our mind are not us, they're not who we are, we don't have to feel bad or inferior, they're just normal conditioned phenomena that have arisen through habits created over many, many lifetimes, but that they can be removed through the, this practice of meditation. And the, if you persevere with meditation, the image here is of a dripping tap. To begin with, uh, your awareness is like the water dropping from a tap, is like um, drop, drip, <coughs> drip, drip. And so the, the, the sound between the drips is when you're distracted. Now, as you practice more, the, the time that you're distracted becomes diminished, becomes less, and the mindful, bright, clear moments are increased. So it's now like your tap is drip, 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 drip. And then, uh, finally, you have continuity of mindfulness. You are totally um, awake, aware, relaxed. There is this balance of sharpness and relaxation and clarity and flexibility and stability of mind. Um, and this is like a stream of water. And this is what we call samadhi or samatha or concentration. And it's this which provides the mental um, factors um, necessary for the higher levels of meditation where we're developing wisdom and insight. Now if you um, have even a small experience of inner peace, it will transform your life. I would compare it to um, someone who's lived in a very um, unpleasant place, let's say in the slum. From the moment they're born, they never ever went anywhere else. All they know around them is this horrible, dirty, smelly, unpleasant, unkind place. But because they've never known anything different, they don't really think about it. And then one day, someone takes them by the hand and says, let's go for a walk, and they climb out of the slum, out of the town, out of the city, up into the mountains, and they're, suddenly they're on top of a mountain, and it's, oh, this is fresh air, oh, this is sky, oh, this is nature, oh, I just never imagined. And then the, the wisdom comes up, where I live my life is such a nasty, dirty, unpleasant place. You see, the insight into that um, unsatisfactoriness of the usual place can only come about when you have a new perspective on it, something to compare it with. Um, and so when you have that comparison, then you begin to see, oh yes, anger, irritation, and jealousy, and confusion, and things, these are really such horrible things. I really don't want them in my life anymore. Um, unless you have um, seen non-greed and non-hatred and non-delusion, at least in that uh, form of uh, a short period of inner peace, you can never really develop the tools to abandon them. So 
developing that inner peace gives you a great deal of self-confidence also. Oh, this is something I can do. It's not impossible. It's not just for lamas in a monastery. It's something anybody can do if you're willing to make the necessary effort. And I, I would, I'm, I'm proposing here that this kind of inner work is absolutely indispensable for someone who wants to fully appreciate the wonder of being born as a human being and to experience and to, you know, we understand in Buddhism before you can take birth as a human being you have to create so much good karma over so many lifetimes. So that's just to be born one of these 7,000 million people on this planet. But to be born in a Buddhist country, in a Buddhist culture, or in a culture which supports my training, or in a country uh, which has a goal of gross national happiness, how much good karma have you created in the past? But that's just like the money you have, that's your, that's your foundation. The next thing is, what are you going to do with that? You know, where do you go from here? Um, it's a foundation, but it's not a given. Um, so, I'm, I'm trying to explain that this sense of inner transformation will bring happiness and welfare to yourself, happiness and welfare to your families and communities and the country that you live in, and in your particular job and role and responsibility as teachers the extent to which you can um, embody and model this transformation will very much affect the extent to which you can uh, instill it in your pupils. So I would like to end my talk at this point. Yes, so um, we have, although I, I spoke longer than I intended, we do have some time for questions. If anyone uh, would like to ask anything or would like to teach me anything, I'm interested to learn also.
but you are not listening. Is it something like this? Um, if that, that's more like the results of meditation rather than the, the technique or, or method of meditation. Um, when the mind is very mindful and very calm and stable, then it does not react in the same way to stimulus from the outer world, outside world. So um, you can something can impinge upon your ear, but there's not the usual reaction of like dislike or making a big story out of something. And similarly, with the eye, sees a form. Um, I like just to uh, tell a short anecdote. Uh, when um, my my teacher, my guru in in in, in Thailand, has many Western disciples. And um, when the first uh, group of monks trained in Thailand were invited to England to establish a monastery in England, um, they started off for the first few months or first year, they were living in the center of London. They were looking for a forest to, to build a forest monastery like we have in Thailand. But in the meantime, they were in London. And the temple was on a, quite a busy street um, and opposite a pub, where it was often the loud rock music. And after they'd been there for some time, our teacher went to visit. And in the evening meditation period, uh, there was a party in the pub. And so there was loud music and singing. Um, and then... At the end of the meditation, uh, there was a question and answer session. And somebody said to my teacher, they said, um, how, uh, you know, very difficult for me to meditate because so many sounds disturbing my mind. Um, and my teacher said, no, you, you misunderstand. Uh, it was not the sound disturbing your mind. Your mind was disturbing the sound. The sound is just a sound, you know. So don't let your mind disturb the sound. So that's similar to what you were saying. You know, when I wrote a topic, this is based on the circles that we are practicing right now throughout the country, probably the conception of GNH, educating for GNH. We came up with the concept of meditation classes. Probably children are asked to meditate whenever possible, even in the middle of a lesson, and they cannot really give in their attention. But then, knowing that meditation is an internal, sort of inner transformation, it sometimes becomes quite misleading for the young children, especially young minds. Because that would mean sometimes giving them a time to think something different than what you are actually asking them to do. Yeah. So uh, sometimes uh, what we understand is that we are, in some cases, in a way we are trying to mislead them with the concept of meditation and making them think something different than what we are trying to convert them. So we are not very sure of what 
should be a crucial spark to their life that could really lead to a sort of inner transformation and then understand meditation is a complete concept rather than taking a very misleading way currently might be happening that then yeah. there's no such data to really record and then say that they have been misleading but then the certain concept we can find that uh, this might be happening because as an adult even we try and then sometimes we are completely misguided by the meditation itself rather than taking really as a you know, transformation. So probably through your experience you would like to know what would be that crucial sort of a point and a spark in especially young minds that can really help them with that in a transformation with uh, meditation. Well, yes, I think that um, pointing out the extent to which we are the prey um, of our habits um, and how often we find it very difficult to act in harmony with our goals and intentions and ideals. So I think all of us can think of examples of things you think, can you think of something really good you know, that you've thought for a long time, I'd really like to develop this in myself, I'd like to be like this, and yet now I realize I still haven't really got around to it, it's just too difficult. Or otherwise we have these bad habits, you know, and you think, I know it's a bad habit, you know, I, I don't want to do this, but I just can't stop. So this is a fundamental problem. How can we apply ourselves to positive things, um, which uh, we have a lot of resistance to, and how can we um, refrain from uh, negative, destructive habits that um, we, we find we uh, just cannot do without. And my suggestion is that um, it's only the, the, the well-trained mind which has the strength to do that. So if we the saying like if you want to lift something up, it's heavy. So I can't lift it. What can I do? I can't lift it. Well, you have to do some exercise. You get a strong arm. Now you can lift it. So if you don't have, if your mind is very weak, yeah, you'll never, you'll never achieve anything. Um, and this is why this meditation is important. Now I, um, I, I gave um, just just now at school. I gave some advice. Real difficulty for meditation. One is, I think in Bhutan particularly, a lack of clarity and clear definition. What are we talking about when we say meditation? It's almost like asking people in, in England or someone, okay, you believe in God, what is God? And everyone gives you a different answer. They don't really know. They have, you know. Um, and it's like in Bhutan, what is meditation? You're meditating. I asked these children the other day, what do you do? Are we sit like this? Like, no. No, what, what do you actually do when you're meditating? Nobody could answer, you know. Um, so I think to prevent, um, like, uh, compulsory meditation in schools being just like an empty uh, form or a ritual, you, have, you need to have some real clear definition. What exactly are we doing? This should be every bit as clear as when you're teaching history or physics or something. You know, what is, the, what is the reasoning behind it? What are the kinds of results that you should uh, be expecting to see? Now, um, one suggestion I had 
um, as for a particular technique which offers feedback um, and which is empowering uh, for students is counting the breath. Now this method, in this method you, uh, you sustain attention on this one spot and then as you breathe in you count one and you breathe out you count one in two, out two, in three, out three, in four, out four, in five, out five but then when you get to five you start again one, one, two, two, three, three, four, four, five, five, six, six and then you start again you count one, one, two, 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 seven and then one to eight and then one to nine and then one to ten so you give this, this is your task your task is to be able to sustain your attention for this one cycle means to count one to five, one to six, one to seven, one to eight, one to nine, one to ten without forgetting, without distraction at all and you make that a goal and this is useful um, one because it gives you something specific to do you know for a child you, you want don't just you know be, don't think about anything just you know you want something what should I do yeah so this is your this is your goal um, to begin with you can't do it okay but if you stay with it you can see progress which is measurable you can see when I began even when I got to five, I already daydreaming. But then you say, ah, oh, after some time I could get to six and seven and eight. So you see, there is some progress being made. And I can do this. I myself am capable of getting better at this the more I do. And, and then when you can make one whole cycle, you have this sense of achievement. And then can you do two cycles? You know. But if, the, if in that counting you get distracted, you can't just carry on. You have to start again at one to five. You have to do the whole thing without um, a break. So I think this is uh, very useful um, for beginning students of meditation because it gives you some measurable outcome, some feedback, internal feedback without a teacher, and some sense of progress and achievement and I think this is useful. Um, the other um, main kind of meditation, particularly for children, is we call loving-kindness meditation. And loving-kindness meditation can be done in many different ways. One is, uh, and this can be guided meditation, where the teacher's teaching, first of all, think of your teachers um, and, your, and somebody uh, that you look up to and respect and then you think may he you try and imagine the face of that person smiling happy see may they be happy may they be well and uh, may he be happy may he be well um, and then uh, from the teacher then can be parents uh, may my, my father be happy may he be free from all physical pain and illness, uh, may be free from all mental pain and illness, may be happy and well, may my mum be happy and well, free from all physical pain, free from all mental pain, 
happy and well. And then you can expand from that to uh, all my fellow students in my class, all the students in the school, all the people in Timpu, all the animals in Timpu, uh, all the people in Bhutan. All, and so developing this ability to, uh, to develop a, a train of thought, a positive stream of, of thought, um, and, and it makes children very happy, and of course it uh, creates uh, harmony in the school and in the community as well. So you can alternate or to, just to see the mood of the children, sometimes some uh, breath counting and sometimes some loving-kindness meditation. These are the two techniques that I would suggest are useful in the school system. Um, the opening or closing the eyes, I think, um, I'm sure as you know very well, in the, in the Tibetan school of meditation or the Vajrayana school, uh, we're taught to just keep the eyes open just a little bit. Um, and that, that is fine. The, the advantage of closing the eyes is that you're completely cutting off the external um, input and it's, yeah, it's somewhat easier to concentrate the mind. The, um, the other side is, it's much more easy to become sleepy if your <coughs> eyes are closed. So, um, my view is that if you are wide awake um, and there's no um, question of you becoming sleepy, then you can try with your eyes closed. Um, but if you feel a little bit dull or you tend to fall, feel sleepy if you close your eyes, then keep your eyes open. It's really a matter of individual preference and what works. Always, uh, in the end, in the, so many different techniques and teachers and views, in the end, you, you, you know for yourself what works. You know, if you close your eyes and you get sleepy, then don't close your eyes. You know, keep your eyes open a little bit. Um, but if you find with your eyes open still many distracting thoughts, then maybe try just for a short period to close your eyes and see if that helps. <coughs> I wanted to tell you another story. Would you want to hear a story? Because I, it's an archery story. I know everyone in Bhutan is uh, very good at archery. It's a story about a great archery teacher, um, one of the great masters of archery. And then he got this very gifted young student. And you could tell right away this, he's going to be a great archer. And this young man was very hardworking um, in his practice and he became extremely good archer. But he got very proud. And he started showing off and even saying to his friends, you know, really, you know, I'm better than the teacher. You know, he's getting old now, you know, and I'm, I'm the new man on the, in the field. Um, and this, uh, this matter got back to the teacher 
And the teacher says, well, it's, it's, it's very possible. You know, he's very humble. He says, maybe you are better than me. We better have a contest and see. We'll have an archery contest. Um, and the young man said, yes, I'm ready, whenever. Um, and so the, the, uh, the, uh, the teacher said, one thing, can I choose where we have the contest? Yeah, anywhere you like, in Chimpu, in Punaka, <coughs> anywhere you like. Um, and so the teacher said, okay. And he said, up there. And, they, and so he climbed the mountain all the way, and they came to this very deep crevasse. And over the crevasse there's just this little trunk, this uh, wooden, very narrow uh, plank of wood. And so the teacher walked into, onto the middle of the plank of the wood and he had his arrow and then straight into the middle of a very small tree. And he said to the student, now your turn. And he saw such a long way down and such a very narrow piece of wood. And he was shaking like this and shaking from fear of death so much that he couldn't shoot the arrow straight. And he's very angry. He said, teacher, you cheated. You know, if we were down, down there, I would, I would win. But the teacher said, no. Um, a true, a true uh, archer must be independent of conditions. <coughs> it's easy to shoot straight when all the conditions are helping you. But where we can see the true master is when all the conditions are difficult. And, and this is, uh, the question is, like we can all be very wise about other people's problems, or we can be very peaceful and calm when we have no, nobody's um, uh, putting pressure on us, or we have no time constraint, or they have no enemies. Or, but how can we sustain this quality of attention when everything around us um, is difficult. That's how we become like the master. And this is something we have to train. It doesn't come naturally. So although that young archer, technically speaking, technically he was the equal of his teacher, but emotionally he was far as inferior. So the technical and the emotional development need to be in harness, in harmony. <coughs> Thank you so much for congratulating us from the spiritual qualities. My curiosity is that. Uh, in meditation, is a breeze. I think uh, to just to maybe obtain the peace in the life. And once a person, uh, after a lot of practice, uh, practice of meditation, if a person uh, reaches to the state of mind that's called by a very special word that's called enlightenment. 
When a person reaches to the enlightenment state of mind, uh, he becomes very much contented and peaceful. And because of that happiness, maybe if the person uh, stops meditating, then will the person be uh, 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 transforming back into his original state or he will remain contented for and the next question is that uh, once a person reaches to the enlightenment stage, will that happen once in a lifetime or will it happen again and again? I'm very much curious to know. Yes, thank you. Um, well, we, we have a slightly different way of talking about this in the Theravada school in Thailand. So I'll speak from my own training and, and understanding for you. So, um, generally speaking, the development of meditation and um, both the, there are two aspects in balance, the calming, stabilizing meditation, which is called shamatha or samatha, and the vipassana or vipassana, which is insight and wisdom. So these things have to be developed in harmony. But, um, we can compare that training um, to purifying or heating water which has some bark. So to kill the bark you need to get to 100 degrees and to boil the water. Even if the water is 90 degrees or 95 degrees it's very hot and, and subjectively it's almost boiling. But unless you get to a boiling point the bark will still be alive, and whenever the water cools down, you're in the same situation. So, for the meditator who's not yet reached enlightenment level, then the benefits of meditation can decline, because they're not fixed yet. But the enlightenment is at the stage in which these, these developments and transformation become fixed. So, like say if you're making um, cement, you know, and you have sand, and you have uh, um, you have gravel and water and cement powder. You mix the cement and the sand, and it's really quite mixed. But you could, um, if you had the right technique, at some point separate them. But the moment you add water, you cannot change the state anymore. So. The enlightenment is like when the water is added. It's the, um, the state in which these things become fixed and unchangeable. But in, the, uh, in my tradition, uh, we talk about four levels of enlightenment. And that at each level, um, more of the negative qualities, the more subtle negative qualities are abandoned. Um, so the first first level we call stream entry. And this is the crucial point because um, after that, this is like we call shutting the door to the lower realms. If you reach that level of enlightenment, you are sure you can never again be born in the hell realm or as an animal or as a hungry ghost. That, that's forever in the past. This is a fixed thing. <coughs> and then uh, and then there is further development of the same path 
to the second level and third level and high school is fourth level. But that's not to say that everyone goes through that that same one, two, three, four. Somebody might just uh, go right up to the second level or the third level in one jump. Um, is that clear? Yes. Yeah. Somebody at the back here. Yeah. Somebody at the back. is not um, a very precise term and that the, the Buddha used the word pavana or cultivation. So in the what we call meditation, sitting with the eyes closed or whatever, this is a mental cultivation and the goal is the reduction of negative mental states and the cultivation and development of positive mental states. And so techniques are secondary to that. And it's whatever works. You know, if you can um, uh, use some other, te- if, if, if 
breathing meditation is not successful for some reason or other. Um, and amongst the many different meditation um, techniques, you have some other one which uh, the children are enthusiastic about or are interested in, then, then that's, that's fine. I would suggest the, um, the loving-kindness meditation um, in which the teacher is leading that is a good one because you immediately feel good when you do that. So it's a kind of a hook to it. But in, in the end, the work of um, developing attention span, um, developing mindfulness, it is work. It, you know, you have, it's like learning a musical instrument or any kind of skill. A, any student has to go through an initial period where it's not that interesting and just be able to bear with that and need some kind of encouragement uh, for that. Um, meditation is not um, a cure-all for all problems, all difficulties. It's not a magic wand. And it's not, um, it's not uh, recommended for people who have serious mental problems um, or um, yeah, have, have serious issues in that way. I would think that um, having said that, for people with substance abuse, that kind of um, some um, forgiveness meditation, some loving kindness for themselves, um, this is uh, important. I gave a meditation just now, um, starting off a meditation, um, uh, wishing well to others. The traditional uh, system is to begin with yourself. So, um, for people who have substance abuse problems and, and so on, they tend to have a very negative view of themselves. So um, having this meditation where they're just developing relaxation and kindness for themselves and loving, giving some forgiveness, this is also useful. But for people who have some uh, serious uh, mental problems, then uh, the kind of cultivation which is much more um, useful is um, helping others, practical, um, selfless work, um, developing kindness um, in social situations. So it's considered like one spectrum, you know, we're not just sort of taking, it's one particular kind and probably the most powerful kind of cultivation. But in a particular situation where an individual is not ready for that or it's not quite right, then some other kind of cultivation which is aimed very, uh, very uh, clearly and precisely on abandonment of unwholesome tendencies and development of wholesome tendencies in the mind can, can provide alternatives. Share uh, what I have about in my mind about meditation. 
And uh, I, I do sometimes, like I try to meditate sometimes, and it's successful, but sometimes every day it's not the same thing. For example, we may have a problem at home or anywhere when we uh, teach also. And then like, instead of meditation, I think of how to find a peaceful way to uh, solve the problem, to solve that problem in a peaceful way. So I would like to uh, know whether thinking and finding ways to solve that problem in a peaceful way is also a part of education. Because uh, we solve the problem in a peaceful way, and I feel that also brings uh, peace to the mind. So whether it is also a part of education. Yeah, I, I would say we're, we're really, um, you know, we're, we're in a problem with definition of terms. You know, what do we mean by meditation? And, and if, we, if we return to that, my proposal to the original Buddha's um, vocabulary is like cultivation. So I could say, yes, definitely, if there's the, um, the solving of, of some conflict and develops of harmony and understanding, then that is a social cultivation. Um, in the particular meditation techniques that we're applying, um, we call these like formal meditation as opposed to informal meditation. Um, one thing that um, needs to particularly stress is um, the skill, life skill that we're developing, um, which is fundamental to all these other kinds of cultivation, is present moment awareness. Um, we, you know, we, again, this is a kind of often spoken about, now, be here now. You know, be here with what you're doing. Don't let your mind wander off somewhere else and, and be distracted and confused. But how can you do that? You can't do it with an active will and decide today I'm going to be in the present moment. But it's the application of the meditation techniques um, which require you to uh, be awake and aware in the present moment in a very focused and, and um, comprehensive way. And then the idea is that one should develop that skill and habit of present moment awareness, then that becomes, starts to manifest more and more in your daily life. So that in a conflict situation, you're not just reacting to what somebody says or their tone of voice or their body language, but you're able to be present present to your own, uh, you can be aware of oh, my heart starting to beat a bit more quickly now or starting and just develop some calming technique in your mind because you're presently aware of what is going on with you right now in this situation. So that, um, the, the idea is that the more you develop these meditation techniques, in a very kind of formal, even artificial way, uh, you're developing particular skills, life skills, which then you apply in such situations with conflicts with children or difficulties with parents or whatever it might be.
What after that? <laughs> and what do we feel or uh, how would we use it in our lives? Or, because uh, I know it's very difficult to reach that stage, but... Uh, well, if, if you have a, like a sort of a, a, a sort of a, like a flash or some kind of special experience in meditation, um, then it's probably not enlightenment. Um, uh, you know, it's it's more likely to be a, a, a more temporary, um, special um, phenomena. So when uh, the major um, issue in, in communities and cultures in which people meditate a lot is that the overestimation of their um, achievements. And so many people believe they're enlightened when in fact they've had some... Um, uh, meditation experience which will, will pass away. The enlightenment as um, as I understand it as we, we, we practice and, and um, study in our tradition it is a falling away of certain things. So it's not like you, you, you're attaining something. It means certain kinds of ways of looking at yourself and the world uh, certain uh, negative qualities are now no longer there anymore. Um, so it's not suddenly, you know, you've got a, like a halo or a glow about you or something. And actually, you see a lot of people who like really glowing people, they're, um, they're not enlightened at all. That's quite misleading. Um, I've got a bit wary of people that, that look really um, glowing and um, charismatic. <laughs> Um, my teacher, um, one of his most famous and key teachings is, um, he said, it's not sure. He said, this is the way you, you relate to your experience. He said, it's not sure. Don't, don't um, be so sure about things, you know. Um, so he said, when, when you like something very much, it's not sure because it's the things you like and after a while you get bored with them. He said, I don't like this, I don't like that person. Well, it's not sure, it changes. And see how everything changes. Nothing is um, completely uh, fixed or sure in this life. And it's a developing a way of, of relating to experience in general. But he also applied this to um, enlightenment. So he said, so you think you're enlightened. So just teach yourself, it's not sure. So you don't even take that for granted. It means taking nothing for granted. And then you're safe. You know, the moment you think, now I'm an enlightened person and I'm this and I'm that, then, you know, it's dangerous. But you stay with the present phenomena. What's your present experience? You know, saying, 
I'm enlightened, I'm not enlightened, I'm this, I'm that. That's something you're adding on to present experience. So the extent to which you're fully in touch with what's happening right now. Say, okay, I've meditated and I just feel full of loving kindness for all beings. You don't have to go the next step, therefore, you know, I must be enlightened. You say, well, this is what I'm experiencing right now. But let's look at this. Maybe tomorrow it will disappear. So there's always that sense of uh, being aware of what's happening right now in the body and mind and being very uh, wary, even suspicious of labels for things. Mm-hmm. Last question, please. In that case, I have one question. Um, I think all of us know Everybody knows that we're going to go big soon. But in spite of that, the suffering is there. People still inflict suffering at each other. And uh, when we look at ourselves, we don't want to suffer. But still, with that knowledge, the imperfect is there, don't want to suffer. But still, we see that happening all around us. Is there any solution, or remedy, or knowledge that can follow? <coughs> Well, well, we have, you know, we have uh, intellectual knowledge, um, but that's not an experiential knowledge. So, you know, a basic Buddhist teaching is that one day we are going to be separated from everyone we love. You know, to be very blunt, there are two alternatives. The person you love will die before you do, or you'll die before they do. But, unless, you know, it's... um, you're going to face separation, um, probably to begin with from grandparents and then parents. Sooner or later, everybody um, is faced with the truth of separation. That's just inseparable from our life. Now, we can, I think all of us hear that, and I don't think anybody would disagree. It's not possible to argue with that. Um, and we may think, well, yes, we have some sort of wisdom and understanding of human life. But what happens when we are suddenly separated from someone we love? Suddenly we find someone we love has cancer or is in an accident and dies suddenly. Then it's like all the knowledge and understanding just goes out the window. We just forget all about it. It's just meaningless. It's empty words. Um, and and this is the problem that we face, that we, we, we have, as yet, find it very difficult to integrate understanding and intellectual knowledge into our hearts. So, um, one way of talking about cultivation or meditation is, is like building a bridge between your brain and your heart, so that you're, at, you're experiencing these truths of impermanence and um, uh, unpredictability and so on and so forth in your, in your present moment awareness. Not, not as a philosophy or as a theory, but as something you feel in your being. Um, and I think that, that, is, that is the way.
on this point, but um, I would say there are only two principles here. Um, one is that uh, we sit um, straight, but not rigidly straight, naturally straight, like a tree. Um, and secondly, we sit still. So whether you sit on a chair if you've got bad legs or bad knees, or you sit on the floor, whether you sit full lotus, half lotus, whatever, um, these are the two principles. And the reason is that the body affects the mind just as the mind affects the body. Um, and as the mind is already um, very distracted, if your body is also moving around, uh, it makes it even harder to still the mind. And if your body is not straight, or your hand over, it's very much easier to become sleepy. So we want to create the optimum conditions. Optimum physical conditions means sitting still, sitting straight, um, and then the, um, it's also important to set up your mind mentally, uh, just to talk to yourself a little bit and say, now is my meditation period, um, and I'm not going to think about the past or the future. I'm not going to think about my family or if I have some pressing problem. I think about that some other time. This is the time just to put everything down, just for a while, just temporarily. Like you're carrying a heavy suitcase, you just put it down for a while, just for a rest. Okay? Now the goal of meditation is not just to become peaceful. If you think, I will meditate to become peaceful, well, just when uh, agitation um, becomes less, you'll just like that so much, you'll get sleepy. Mm. So now we have set up the body, uh, and we have 
established our right understanding that we, we want to uh, develop the state of um, relaxed wakefulness. Wakeful and relaxed. And as um, uh, an exercise to develop this state, I would like you all, first of all, to observe, to be aware of the sensations in your head, just on the top of your head. How, what, what is the feeling there? Don't try to imagine it or to think about it, just the direct experience of your head. As you breathe in and you breathe out, what are the sensations appearing? Is there heat or cold or pressing or aching or what is going on there? And now the sensations in your face. Bring your attention, bring your present moment awareness to your face, to the forehead, the eyes, the nose, the cheeks, the lips, the tongue, chin, breathing in, breathing out, developing a present moment, direct awareness of this part of your physical nature we call the face. Breathing in, breathing out in a very natural way. Now the sensations in your neck, your neck and your throat, training your mind to be able to awaken to, be aware of, present to the simple, normal, everyday sensation in the neck. Breathing in, breathing out. Now the sensations in your shoulders. The shoulders are where tension tends to accumulate. Be aware, simply aware, without judgment, without liking or disliking, without thinking and imagination. Really aware of the sensations in your shoulders. Now develop the awareness of the sensations in your arms, following down from the armpit, down the arm to the elbows, the forearms, the hands, the fingers. Totally present, aware, without judgment, awake, relaxed, with the sensations in your arms and hands and fingers. <coughs> now bring attention to your chest. What are the sensations that you are experiencing right now as you breathe in, as you breathe out, in the chest area? Now in the tummy, the belly area, as you breathe in, as you breathe out, what are the sensations? There's no right sensations or wrong sensations, 
There's just whatever is present right now. We're awakening to the nature of our bodies, the nature of our existence, without philosophy, without theories, merely training our awareness in the present moment. Now bring your attention to the back and from the base of the neck down the back aware of any sensations that are present as you breathe in, as you breathe out. Now observe the sensations in your bottom, sitting on the seat, pressure, whatever sensations are present, merely aware as you breathe in, as you breathe out. Now bring the awareness to your legs from the top of the legs, the thighs, the knees, the calves, the ankles, the feet, the toes, breathing in, breathing out. Now spread the attention and feel the present moment as experienced in the physical body from the top of the head right down to the feet without focusing on any one particular part of the body. Just feel as you breathe in, as you breathe out, the whole body breathing. As you breathe in, feel the breath in every part of your body. As you breathe out, Feel the breath in every part of your body, leaving the body. Breathing in, breathing out. Totally aware, present to your experience. This is the real world, the world of experience, not the world of memory or the world of imagination. This is the world as we experience it. Nothing to do, nowhere to go. Nobody to be, experience the present moment as you breathe in, as you breathe out. Awake, aware, relaxed. If your mind does wander, become restless. Don't worry, it's quite normal. But just very gently, but very firmly, bring the mind back to the present moment. Now, if you are experiencing some sense of contentment and interest, 
in this present moment awareness, the next step is to focus the awareness on one particular point in the body. The point should be one in which you can experience the sensation of the breath very clearly, very comfortably. Now, rather than being aware of the breath and being aware of the different parts of the body as you breathe in, all of your focus is on this one point and you're establishing your awareness like a gatekeeper, being present as the breath comes in and as the breath leaves the body. There's no body breathing, there's no person breathing, just a natural process happening by itself. Our duty is to be awake and aware, recognizing the nature of the in-breath and the out-breath, sustaining attention for the whole duration of an in-breath and the whole duration of an out-breath. At this stage you may be simply aware of the sensation of the breath, training the mind to be aware without distraction, or you may count the breath, the effort is to be not too tight, not too loose, just right. Okay, so that's enough for the meditation this afternoon. So did you enjoy?
Um, for, for your information, um, there are, I have given a number of short teachings and uh, um, reflections on, on meditation and other topics uh, which were put onto YouTube. So if you have access to internet and you look up my name on YouTube, you can uh, listen to some more. Um, I think no more words of wisdom except to encourage you all um, to um, to give some thought to the value of the things that I've been saying today. Um, the Buddha once said to his disciples, there are two ways of showing respect for me and devotion to me. One is to offer flowers and incense, um, and I'm not so keen on that, the Buddha said, it's all right. But what I really like is when people listen to the things I say and put them into practice. And if you do that, then that is the true puja, is the dharma. It's the patipati puja, means the puja with practice. And um, I, I have been a monk now for 32 years, um, and I started off like most Western people with rather critical mind, and I met my match in the Buddha. I've never been able to find a single teaching the Buddha taught which I've been able to prove wrong. Um, so I have great confidence in his teachings and his practices um, that they do work, and they work for everyone. And it's not just for man or for woman or for Asian or European. These are universal psychological principles of development that we can all um, take from the Buddha and Buddhist tradition. And if we want to use them in a more secular idiom or environment, that's fine. Um, they're, they're there for everyone to make you so. And so for your own happiness and welfare, and for happiness and welfare of your families and your students, I wish you um, every success in applying these principles. On behalf of the Ministry of Education, and particularly on behalf of my colleagues, we are going to offer our deep reverence as well as gratitude to the Venerable Chancellor Bhikkhu. And once again, thank you so much.